This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives and interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. And when we're back, we're going to bring you the bestseller lists right before the winter holidays. So we'll talk to you soon. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Michael Paternitti on the line. He's the author of The Telling Room, a tale of love, betrayal, revenge, and the world's greatest piece of cheese. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Thank you for having me, Mark. So the seed for your book, as you mentioned in your introduction, was planted years ago while you were a graduate student, I believe an MFA, working at Zingerman's in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Well, can you tell us how the story came to you back then? Um, yeah, I was, um, I was working as a proofreader for the deli. I was in grad school at the University of Michigan um, studying uh, for my MFA in fiction, and I... Um, love that deli. It was just this incredible place. It was like a foodie, um, you know, bonanza. The one of the owners, R.A. Weinswag, would travel the world and find um, the finest foods uh, and and their stories and bring them back to the deli. And I went in there and uh, they offered me this proofreading job. Um, and I was I was asked to proofread his newsletter. Um, telling of these products and these tales of his travels. And uh, there was a Spanish celebration month, and I proofread this little entry about this cheese that Ari had found in Spain, uh, up in in the north-central part of Spain in Castile, in a tiny village, and it was made by a cheesemaker by the name of Ambrosio which seemed impossible. That, that alone seemed like its own fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But this, this guy um, had sheep that he milked, and he would take the milk to a little stable across from the house where he lived, um, and he would make this cheese and then take it up to the family cave and age it for a year. And after, afterwards, then he would drench it in olive oil. And it was sold in this really sort of idiosyncratic white tin. And... Um, and at the time, it had won uh, some some medals and different agricultural fairs and cheese shows. And Ari, I remember he wrote um, that it was a cheese that was intense, dense, and sublime. And it was the most expensive cheese that Zingerman's had ever sold. And so I, I ripped this little entry out when the final newsletter appeared because I just thought it was so intriguing. And I put it away uh, in a file. And then, um, yeah, and then flash forward, you know, 
almost 10 years later, I was on assignment as a magazine writer uh, going to profile the great chef Ferran Adria, whose sure. um, restaurant El Bouilly was basically changing the face of cuisine. And uh, I had a down Sunday, and I went up to this little village called Guzman, and uh, I went to see if I could try some of this cheese and see if I could meet this cheesemaker, Ambrosio. And what I found there was um, that he had actually stopped making the cheese, and, and he claimed it had been stolen from him, and uh, he was plotting to murder his best friend, who he claimed had stolen it. Wow. That, wow. That is just, that is, that is dense and, and rich like the cheese. That's, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. It was one of those moments. I, I met him, uh, it was an August Sunday in the year 2000. And in this little village on the north part of town, there's a hill. And into the hill are, are dug these caves uh, that date back to Roman times in Spain. And the caves were used to store food back in the day. But over time, they built these little rooms above the caves uh, that were called um, telling rooms. And they built little fireplaces in there, and and, uh, there was usually a table and uh, some benches to be found. And people of the village uh, would gather there all these years later to eat and tell stories and drink their homemade wine from these uh, vessels called parons, which are just like decanters with spouts on them, and they would hold them up in the air, and the wine arcs up into uh, your mouth, unless you unless you drizzle it all over your shirt, which I I did quite a bit of um, during my time there. <laughs> but um, but it, it was in this telling room that Ambrosio told this story over eight hours on that Sunday, and literally when I walked out at two in the morning, I remember it felt as if my um, like my head had just completely exploded. So um, you eventually ended up moving to that town with with your family. So what what inspired you to get that that personally close to uh, this town and this story and these people? Well, I, you know, at, at first when I went up there, it was more I, in in some weird way. It was like the way we create pilgrimages. Uh, I was just interested in seeing the place, and and I didn't expect. Um, to meet a storyteller of the likes of Ambrosio. I mean, I, in my work, I, I traveled around quite a bit, but I had never met somebody who could um, unspool a story like this guy could. He was like 260 pounds of hulking, you know, Falstaffian belly. He was like, the, you know, he's like Mardi Gras. He, everything about him, he was joyous and body and um, melancholy and uh, emotional. And he just, he just had this, this force that was undeniable. And I think um, I, started to, I started to concoct ways to return. Um, you know, I'd find another assignment in Spain or somewhere and stop in, in, in the village for a few days um, just to find out at first if really... It, felt true because the whole thing did feel like a, a bit of a dream or a fairy tale. Um, but yes, finally over time, um, I wrote a book proposal and after 2002 in the year 2003, we moved as a, as a family, um, to Spain for about seven or eight months and, and lived part of those months up in the village. 
And how did that go? I mean, with your kids, with your wife, how, how active were they in your, if they were a part of your research at all, or, or uh, did they just let you go and uh, try all these cheeses? Or this one <laughs> they were they were an integral part of all of it. I think one of the the things that was most enticing about this place was that it was a little village, as I say, with you know like eighty people, um, and many of them were old. And Ambrosio was preaching this old way of living, um, and it, his story was this like slow food tale gone completely awry, but. He was living this slow way, and he was taking time um, to make his food, and he was taking time to tell these stories. And um, meanwhile, in my life, it was just, as it is in most American lives, um, deadlines and uh, this speed that you were always trying to slow things down so that you could find time for your family and find time for the things that, that matter, that keep you connected, Um and so every time we went to this place, it was like stepping back or out of time. And in this place, we began to make sort of new memories as a family. We were able to um, spend like delicious amounts of time together. And uh, the children were, we had two children at the time. We had a, we had a third afterward, but um, they were young. They were three and, and one in that summer. And, um, and so, yeah, I just we had these very fantastic adventures. Um, like we climbed in the caves one day, my son and I, and um, we celebrated our daughter's birthday out in the fields with this big, you know, vanilla cake that the bakers in, in the village uh, brought out. And and I remember our daughter basically sort of just face planting into the cake and just beginning to eat. Um, so, and Ambrosio was right there with us for all of this, and just really took us in as part of his own family. Um, and then in the years after, when I would go back to report, um, you know, I would have these memories of our kids and our family there. So in some ways, too, our family was frozen in time there. And those memories were alive and those ghosts were as alive as all the other ghosts in the village for me. Now, you talk about love and betrayal in, in the subtitle and in the book, and revenge. And how much a part of all this did you become, or were you merely a witness? And um, uh, tell us about that. That's a good question. At, at first, I, was, I saw myself as a witness. I saw myself as somebody there to record the legend of Ambrosio Molinos, the cheesemaker of Guzman. And he told this incredible story. Um, his cheese had started in a stable, but had gone on to um, be eaten by uh, the royal family of Spain and England. It was served to uh, Ronald Reagan and Frank Sinatra. And Fidel Castro loved this cheese so much he tried to buy all of it from Ambrosio. Um, and as the business got bigger... The demand became greater, and they had to. Ambrosio realized he had to move into a bigger facility, so he was trying to find a little factory that would work. And there was one across the fields in, in, a, in a nearby village. And he claimed that his best friend and blood brother, who he sort of had brought in to help him with the business side of things, because after all, Ambrosio was really just a farmer. Um, he claimed that this best friend of his, named Julian, put a contract in front of him that he signed without reading uh, and and by so signing 
he signed away his rights to the cheese and um and so lost it and when he realized this later of course uh he decided he was going to get revenge by um by trying to kill julian <laughs> he had a very specific murder plot and uh and he laid that out, you know, very vividly. Um, so the, the the love part of it, of course, starts with Ambrosio's love uh, for this cheese, this old family recipe that he resurrected. And in, in, in into this cheese, he, he would say literally, um, you know, that he would pour his love. He would pour all of this philosophy, all of this history, and, and try to create this, the taste of the land there through this cheese. Um, and then I think with the betrayal, um, you have, of course, the betrayal of the alleged betrayal of Julian of um, Ambrosio. And, uh, and then as, as I got deeper into it, of course, I became implicated in all of this. And um, eventually it became a bit of a narrative battle between myself and Ambrosio for who was going to control the real story of the book. And... Coming from a writing perspective, I mean, how long did it take you to write this book? And how did you end up deciding what stories to keep and, and, and how to put this book together? Um, did it go through different different incarnations? Um, how did all that work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It was... Um it was it took 10 years really to report and write the book mm-hmm. which is a which is a long time in book you know in book years even and uh i was working a magazine my magazine job but um but what i found with the book was i i thought i was pretty certain at first that this was in fact going to be the legend of this cheesemaker and the story of his cheese and I wasn't sure how it was going to end, of course, because there was a sort of active murder plot slash mm. violent fantasy that was playing out. But um, but I also began to realize as I became more and more implicated in the town, the more I felt this affinity with Ambrosio, this kinship, this friendship, um, that I didn't somewhere inside of me want to do what I, I would have done on any other story as a reporter, which was I would have gone and heard the other side of this story. I didn't want to know the other side of the story. And so I sort of invented ways to drag my feet. Um, and some of those ways were fantastic, you know, drinking homemade red wine in someone's telling room and listening to, to stories is a great way to pass time. It just, that time turned into a couple of years. And then finally, I think it was my wife who really, um, gave me a little kick and said, Hey, if you're really a reporter, don't you think it's time maybe to go over and, and talk to Julian? Um, and so I think that that became a catalyst for trying to figure out uh, maybe that this book was going to be my story in the end. And I needed to, to rest it uh, out of Ambrosio's hands, but the force and power with which he told that story really cast the spell over me for, I, I, you know, at least five, five years, maybe six years. Sure. Sure. So did you ever end up talking with Julian or, or did you just dodge that forever? No, I, I went to Ambrosio and I said, this would have um, been much later. This would have been maybe seven or eight years into us knowing each other. Um, I went to him and I said, in order for me to really, 
do this book. I need to talk to Julian and I, I need to be um, honest with you about that. I'm not going to go behind your back. And, um, and Ambrosio had just, his father had just passed away and he was very, on this day, he was very um, emotional and he was going through some photographs of his father and he had the, the photo album on his lap and he kind of, he kind of closed the photo album and he said, okay, all right, today, today we're going to do it. Um, and he said, just follow me. And I followed him. We got in the car and Ambrosio started driving at sort of this breakneck speed through the Spanish countryside into this, uh, into this village called Aranda de Duero, which is um, probably half an hour from uh, Guzman. Mm-hmm. And he, and he knew Julian so well, he knew Julian's exact schedule always. And uh, so he took me straight to the courthouse. And of course I'm riding in this car and it's, um, he's driving like a madman. And there was some part of me that was really wondering what this was all about. Like, did he have um, a weapon? Were we about to, were we about to settle this whole thing? And was it all going to get settled before my eyes? Or was he really, sort of um, chauffeuring me to, to this showdown that I was going to have with Julian. Um, what I realized in retrospect was I think it was the moment where Ambrosio realized he was about to lose control of the narrative. And um, in a weird way, he was chaperoning me because we went to Julian's office. Um, I rang the bell. Ambrosio sat across at a bar waiting for me. And when I introduced myself to Julian up in his law office, uh, Julian had one of those looks in his face when I said the name Ambrosio, like he thought maybe I'd come to do the killing. Um, wow. And I sort of assured him immediately, <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not here to do anything on Ambrosio's behalf. I just, I need to hear you tell your story. And, um, and he was really, he was like very pale and, a little bit uncertain. And he said, I will tell you my story, but um, I can't do it right now. I would like to meet you in Madrid in two months. And I said, well, okay, that sounds fine. And I then flew back and, and um, began this conversation with Julian, which of course presented a very different story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that you keep saying the alleged betrayal. So clearly there, there is another perspective going on. Um, and it's it is significant. I hadn't realized he was a lawyer. So when you say that he, you know, Ambrosio says he put this contract down and I just signed it, um, that's uh, there's a whole different spin on that. If that contract is coming from someone who does contracts for a living, yes, exactly. And I think one of the one of the things that went on here was that um, not only was I in my own little narrative battle with Ambrosio, but, um, but Ambrosio was in a narrative war with Julian and, um, it became part of the legend of this cheese that, um, that its maker had been betrayed. And so it had this very sort of Shakespearean plot line. Um, and one thing I do remember Julian saying was, um, you need to think about that story. Of course, course in Ambrosio's story there's a betrayer um because if there's not a betrayer then what's left is Ambrosio and the mistakes that he made and and how he took this magical cheese and it was really considered that many people thought when they ate it that they were tasting um sort of their own past because these cheeses were made 
uh, way back when, when, when mothers made cheeses and kitchens and Castile and served them to their, to their children. And so people really, when they tasted this cheese, they went back to their mother's kitchens and sort of thought of it as a magical thing. Um, but Julian, Julian pointed out, um, as, as any good lawyer might, uh, that Ambrosio needed to cling to this narrative because this is, this was his, um, solution and salvation for some of his own behavior. Now, your first book was a New York Times bestseller called Driving Mr. Albert, about driving Einstein's brain across the country. And I remember when this galley came into Publishers Weekly uh, those years ago. Were there any similarities in these two journeys for you? Yeah, that's a good question. And I, you know, of course, they're these slightly inscrutable men at the center of these narratives. Um, they're, they're both uh, quests of a sort. Um, there's so much forward momentum in the first book, you know, a road trip is episodic and, um, I was trying to create a certain amount of velocity with that book. It was a shorter book. It was, um, powered by, uh, this pilgrimage we made with the brain to return it to the Einstein family. Um, so there was a question that hovered over the book about whether or not we were going to accomplish that. Um, but there's still a way for everything to reflect and refract through this brain, um, everything in America was reflecting and refracting. And that became really interesting to me. And I think in this book, Ambrosio was telling this story about Castile, where, where in the first book, this Dr. Harvey, who had, who had taken Einstein's brain, or stolen it, um, was completely sort of silent and inscrutable. Ambrosio spoke more words than any other person I'd ever spent time with. I mean, he told stories better than anyone I knew. And, um, and there's something all encompassing about that time with him. But I, in the end, I think there was a little, a bit of, um, of, uh, a resonance and, and this interest of mine and storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves and the legends we create in order to kind of get up in the morning and, and do what we do. I mean, we all have created some self mythology, uh, about, ourselves. And I think that became very interesting as I went forward with Ambrosio, trying to figure out exactly who this man was. Um, and by the same token, I was really trying to, to find out who this Dr. Harvey was in the first book. So in the end, um, I guess my question is, how does, how does the cheese hold up? Did you, uh, did you ever get to taste it? I had, I should tell you, there was of this cheese, of the original cheese that Ambrosio made, he had one tin left that he kept in the cave underneath the telling room. And he had said he was going to save it there forever um, mm-hmm. as sort of to, to memorialize this cheese. Uh, at the end of our summer there, our family summer, um, we had this moment up at the telling room um, eating, having this merienda um, this meal sort of in the late afternoon where he surprised us by, by uh, going down into the cave, bringing this cheese up and opening the tin. Um, and he put it over a flame to um, heat it. That's how he, he liked to serve it. It was a very, it is a very hard sort of Manchego like cheese. And he, um, it, he let it sort of uh, um, boil there in its own olive oil for a while mm-hmm. uh, until it was sweating and then he then he served us this last piece of Paramo de Guzman, um, so that we might taste 
the memory of it and taste the land as it once tasted and um, to remind ourselves what purity really was. I think that's, those were the reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and was it that magical experience? Well, for me, I, you know, I, I, I lack all objectivity and that moment, <laughs> I mean, the cheese was so powerful. It was so strong. He is, it, it was a cheese that only Ambrosio could make. It was so completely overwhelming. Um, most people can barely eat one piece of it really, truly. I mean, you can't, mm-hmm. I, I, I tried to eat two and it was really too much. It was so rich. Um, but it had this sort of sweet, nutty quality, and um, and then as it melts in one's mouth, or as it melted in mine, um, you could taste the, some of the herbs, some of the the chamomile, and uh, the sage, a little tiny bit of thyme, and uh, then there was yeah this very nutty um, undertone. But it was it it was so rich and so strong that um. Yeah, it was it was as if really truly um, I had been uh, I was like tasting ambrosio, and I think he saw it that way. Like this was a part of him. This was this was um, not only just his legacy, but it was a taste of of him. We've been talking with Michael Paternetti. You can find his book, The Telling Room Stores, right now. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Scott Ian, author of I'm the Man, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Dino Mangestu on the line. He's an award-winning novelist whose new book is All Our Names. Dino, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. So tell us about this novel. It's a story um, that takes place half in in Kampala in Uganda in the early 1970s, um, and the other half of the novel takes place in a small college town in the Midwest um, named Laurel, also around the exact same time. And the novel is narrated between two different voices. Um, one is a, a young man that we um, can call Isaac, and the other is an American woman named Helen who's a social worker. The novel oscillates back and forth between these two landscapes and these two voices. And a part of the novel was published as a short story, The Paper Revolution. So which came first? Was the story developed into the novel or excerpted from it? Oh, the story was definitely excerpted from it. Um, I've never been able to write a short story in my life, and so um, I do tend to write novels that are that are rather fragmented and, and oftentimes take place um, across different timelines and that often have a non-linear structure. So sometimes I get lucky and um, an and editor is able to make a little excerpt out of it, but otherwise I've, I've never been very good to make um, one single story like that. Your books look at the various aspects of the African diaspora in the United States. What, what draws you to these topics? I, I mean, you know, the, the most obvious answer would be that in Europe is my own life. Um, my family came from Ethiopia in 1980 when I was two years old to the United States and so that those stories oftentimes are, are direct reflections of you know my own concerns and my own family's narrative um, but also at the same time you know you recognize that there are um, absences or gaps or holes in, in our cultural imagination or in our narratives and so you 
are drawn to those gaps, you're drawn to those empty spaces, and you um, and you try to see if you can't carve out a little room for yourself within those empty spaces, if you can't um, make characters and stories that are familiar to you, but perhaps unfamiliar to the reader, um, if you can't argue for your own existence in this, you know, sort of American landscape that's still deeply attached to an African um, mood as well. Mm. And in, in another interview, you said that you write American literature, not immigrant literature. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I thought it was a really interesting comparison. Yeah, because I think, you know, we tend to use the sort of um, immigrant literature category as um, sort of burgeoned as a, as, a, as a framework fairly recently as a way of um, oftentimes signaling that these are stories that are from the outside, or that these are stories that are charged by certain ethnicity, and and of course, you know, my my narratives definitely are they they are stories of of African characters who come to the U.S. But to to push them to that side is to somehow also say that they don't belong to the sort of category of American narratives or American literature or just literature, of course, in general. When you think of the fact that so much of our our country's history, or the very founding of our country's history, you know, begins with that idea of migration. Um, to summarize our, our stories, or to make a somewhat arbitrary distinction between an American literature and immigrant literature, or to find ways of factoring them off, I think is to do a great injustice to what our what our cultural history and narrative is possible of. of. So, uh, just to talk about your upbringing a little bit, you and your mother left wartime Ethiopia when you were two and, and moved to Peoria, Illinois, to join your father. How did your family end up there? I'm still not completely positive. Um, we, my father left Ethiopia in 1978, just before I was born, and um, he fled before we did because he, he, you know, felt like he really needed to in order to um, to preserve his safety. And so by, it took us two years for us to leave the country. And by that time, my father had made his way from from Ethiopia to Italy to the United States, and had settled in Peoria and was working at Caterpillar um, and had kind of constructed this very all-American life that was waiting for us to uh, to drop in on. So there was a lot going on politically in both Uganda and the U.S. during the 1970s, which is when All Our Names is set. Uh, did you learn anything that surprised you when you were researching the time period in those two different places? I, I wish I could say that I did a lot of research. Um, I, you know, I, I I did a lot of work on Uganda when I was uh, working there as a journalist in 2007, and so um, I traveled there and I spent a lot of time um, reading about its history and reading about its political climate, um, both pre-colonial and, and post-colonial. Um, and a lot of those things, obviously, which, you know, you retain them in your imagination and you retain the images that you experience when you're there as a journalist. Um, and so they they worked their way back into the story when I began writing this novel really quickly, and I was I, I never felt tempted to to go back and try to um, you know research a particular historical character or, or, or narrative because I was also creating a Uganda that was very much the Uganda of my characters. It was a, a Uganda that's narrated from the point of view of, of one man who comes to Uganda with the aspirations of of becoming a writer, um, and then as for the early 1970s. Um, you know, again, like these are uh, what I was always more interested in is how you take the sort of political climate of a particular time and bring it down to the life of an individual character. So, you know, I have not, I'm not that interested in trying to replicate history so much as I am um, trying to figure out how my characters are responding to, to the climate and to the times that they live in. 
And certainly at that time in, in the U.S., um, in the 1960s, 1970s, there was a lot going on uh, in civil rights and race relations. And this, then you have this relationship, this very personal sort of reflection of that between Isaac and Helen. Um, how do you explore those tensions through the, the lens of an interracial relationship? You know, I mean, that was that was partly why I why I chose that time period. It's um, you know we went from from the sort of dramatic emergence of of the civil rights movement from the fifties into the early sixties, and a lot of enormous legislative gains were made during that time. And then you know post nineteen sixty eight, there's um, sort of I think uh, a frustration and a disappointment. You know, Martin Luther King was assassinated. There were a lot of race riots across the country, and this lingering sense that for all the gains of civil rights movement, there's um, you know a persistent sense of discrimination and economic disparity that continued to haunt the country. And so Isaac and Helen are are an aspiring couple um, in that time period where there may not be overt forms of discrimination anymore. But at the same time, you know when you when you take all that progress and you and you force people to look at um, complexity of an interracial interracial relationship, you can see how much of those anxieties remain, how uncomfortable people still are with seeing um, a couple like that enter into the public sphere. And so, you know, that was one way of of, of showing um, that while a lot has been done, there's still enormous challenges left. Now, you studied at Georgetown, and then you got your MFA from Columbia. How did that shape, both those places, shape your writing? And were you writing at the time at Georgetown? Definitely. Um, you know, when I began at Georgetown, I, I did so with the desire that maybe I'd go into politics, international affairs, but um, really knowing that I wanted to become a writer. Um, that, that was probably the most essential thing to me. And I spent most of my time in college um, trying to do just that. You know, I wasn't deeply invested in, in the traditional collegiate experience. I spent a lot of my time in cafes and in bookstores reading by myself. And that was perhaps the most profound effect, um, that it helped me carve out a, a very solitary space for myself and let me be comfortable um, with that solitude. And, you know, doing an MFA, I think, um, supports that. You know, you find a community of people who who all feel the same way, who are engaged with the same craft and with the same um, strange, lonely process of trying to become a writer. And you've also now been the recipient of nearly a dozen awards. How has that affected your writing? I, I would like to think that it doesn't. Um, you know, because when you, at least for me, when I think I have a book that I'm working on, the, the process is so it's so long and often so tedious um, and so frustrating and at times rewarding um, that you don't really have that much time to, to think about the uh, things that are outside of it. You know, I think sitting down to work every day requires um, a certain immersion in a particular world. And most of what you've done beforehand or what people have said beforehand um, really slip away in that, in those moments of actual writing, you know, outside of that, of course, there's, um, you know, the sort of public side of you that is very grateful for all the things that have been given to you in terms of the recognition and those things make it easier and of course um, grant you that sort of privileged space to keep writing but when you're sitting down to work you're um, you know every day you start from scratch by and large and nothing makes it better Um, some things can definitely make it worse but definitely nothing makes it better and I I take it your MacArthur grant uh, probably made it a little bit better 
if not worse. <laughs> it makes it, it definitely definitely does not make the worse, um, right. and it doesn't you know, um, and it does you know, but it doesn't add any sort of anxiety or extra pressure. It's um, the cards is sort of an affirmation for me. It's, it says that um, you know what you do um, is, is important, and that it you know keeps people interested in, in, in the stories that you decide to tell, even though you may at times feel like those stories are are not that relevant or that important to the culture or society. This at least, you know, says, okay, actually they are. So let's talk nonfiction a little bit. You've written a number of articles and essays for various magazines. You mentioned you've traveled a lot in various countries in Africa. Um, how how has that influenced your fiction writing? Um, you know, more and more with, with with each novel, those those experiences as a journalist find their way into my into my stories. Um, I never plan on it, or I never I never set out to do a story with the idea that someday I may work those narratives into my fiction. Um, but inevitably, I've always found that I'm left with, with characters and images um, that continue to haunt me and that find their way into my stories. And so, you know, you take and, and steal from all sorts of places. So um, one of the characters in the novel, Joseph, um, owes a certain debt to a, to a colonel in Eastern Congo that I spend time with. Um, definitely the landscape of, of you know, these villages and places in Africa are an enormous step to my travels throughout the continent. And I don't think I'd be able to, to imagine those places as intimately had I not traveled through them. Um, you know, spending time with young soldiers who, who are fighting um, very hard to make a better life for themselves and their country um, you know, played a big role in my imagining of these you know, aspiring revolutionaries in Kampala. Dinal, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Dinal Mengestu. You can find his book, All Our Names, in stores right now. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Myra Kalman, author and illustrator of My Favorite Things, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.